This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, filling in for your usual host, Mr. Joel Hilliker. And with me is our panel. Here in the studio in Edmond, Oklahoma, is Andrew Miller. Hello. And from our office in Ontario is Abraham Blondeau. Good day. From our office in the UK is Mr. Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And joining us from Jerusalem, Israel, is Brent Noctegal. Thanks for having me. Well, the Biden administration here in the U.S. is still trying not to use the R word, but the data is in. The economy has contracted now for two consecutive quarters. So that is the definition of recession. To bring us up to speed on this, we'll go to Andrew Miller. Yeah, that's absolutely right. We just found out what we suspected was probably true for a couple months now, that the United States is in recession. The The Biden administration hasn't actually come out and officially announced it, but the, uh, the second financial quarter of the year ended uh, at the beginning of the month. We now have the data in. The economy shrank by 1.6% the first quarter of the year, and then it shrank another 0.9% this last quarter. So two consecutive quarters of negative growth uh, is a uh, recession. And uh, they have some, also some other pretty sobering numbers in there. They said that uh, adjusted for inflation, like real income, like your wage, has fallen by about half a percent. Uh, some people have gotten raises. But the inflation rate, by the time it all adjusts it, the average purchasing power across the nation has gone down by half a percent. Uh, and the personal savings, um, they said probably the average uh, American family is saving about 5% of their income, and that's down That's down a bit from the, uh, from the previous numbers as well. So Americans are saving less. They have less purchasing power. Uh, the inflation's at a four-decade uh, high, 9.1%, and the uh, the economy's in a recession. And there's really no indication that that's going <laughs> to stop uh, next quarter or maybe even the quarter after that. Because like I said, two, two quarters negative growth is the definition of a recession. Four quarters is the definition of a economic depression. So uh, if, if we get a quarter back in fall that comes negative and then a quarter at the end of the year, it could actually be depression. And President uh, Donald Trump is warning that that's exactly what he thinks is going to happen uh, unless someone starts holding the Biden administration to account. He did a, a rally this week uh, or, or maybe the week before where he uh, where he addressed this. And uh, and this is what President Trump said. He says, we've got to get this act in order we have to get this country going or we're going to have serious problems. Not recession. Recession's a nice word. We're going to have a much bigger problem than a recession. We're going to have a depression, you know. In 1921, they had this thing called a depression. You know that, right? You wish, they wish they could have a recession only. So he's, he's President Trump's predicting a, like a, a Great Depression style collapse unless the Biden administration turns this around. And it doesn't look like they plan on doing because uh, this this recession is largely fueled by the COVID stimulus bills. But now they've got like new climate change programs and new infrastructure programs where you're going to be spending even more money uh, pushing um, pushing those inflationary pressures up and, and keeping uh, the economy just getting more of the same, uh, the same thing we've had for the past two quarters into the next two quarters. 
Yeah, it has been a little surprising to see so much uh, debate over how exactly to define recession. And I think I've figured it out. A recession is defined as two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth if a Republican is president. (laughs) But if a Democrat is president, then the definition is very nuanced and mercurial and, you know, far more complicated. Um, But this new data really does make it plain. And and it looks like a, a depression could be near if it doesn't turn around soon. Uh, but midterm elections are just months away. Are you optimistic about a red tide? And if so, um, would that turn this economic downturn around? <laughs> Politics are hard to break dick these days. Personally, I'm kind of optimistic about a red tide uh, in the midterm, maybe getting some more Republicans in the Senate, some more Republicans in Congress, uh, depending on how successful those Republicans are uh, at pushing back against the Biden administration. If they could get some more oil drilling leases and actually bring the fuel price down, that would help because that's the biggest contributor to inflation right now is fuel prices. Uh, the last inflation report said that like basically fuel, gasoline was up 60%, food was up 10%, and everything else was up between 5 and 6%. So bringing those fuel prices down uh, could potentially stop the recession. Um, and get you to some more a more normal economic standing. But still, other than that, bringing down fuel prices isn't going to get rid of the now well over $30 trillion national debt we have. Right. Uh, and it's not going to get rid of the uh, the consumer debt we have. There is definitely um, an angle, like, like I said, low fuel prices or, or no fuel prices, that, that like America's reserve currency status is in danger because people don't trust the dollar just because of... Uh, our debt's well higher than our our GDP, and that just structurally, you can <laughs> the economists can argue over when the House of Cards is going to come down. But until you get rid of that debt, the the House of Cards will come down. That's why the uh, uh, the the two articles I think we can put in the show notes today are uh, the Way of Debt by Mr. Wick Hirma and a Bold Warning by Mr. Gerald Flurry that describe what we're seeing in America today from two different angles. Uh, the, the Mr. Um, Hirma article is more of a Christian living article on, uh, on managing your finances, where the, the Mr. Flurry's article is more of a geopolitical uh, article on what happens to a nation when they don't manage their finances well. But, uh, but that way of debt by, by Mr. Hirma, it's, it, I mean, the opening sentence is living beyond your means is a form of slavery. And then it goes through um, a lot of scriptures and other uh, biblical things for uh, basically helping any of our listeners correct in their individual lives what Congress needs to correct on a national level. But the Mr. Gerald Flurry article, this bold economic warning, talks about uh, this economic crisis, basically the second Great Depression that Donald Trump's talking about, uh, as um, the late Herbert W. Armstrong's greatest personal prophecy. Now, there's a little bit of a difference between a biblical prophecy and a personal prophecy. A biblical prophecy is explicitly stated in the Bible. Uh, a personal prophecy is maybe not explicitly stated in the Bible, but it's based on uh, but it's based on Bible prophecy and if it comes from a prophet it may well be true uh, as well. Now there's there's prophecies in Deuteronomy 28 about end time Israel struggling with debt problems saying that foreigners would lend to him uh, and he wouldn't lend to them. Uh, so that so that is a biblical prophecy that end time Israel would have problems with debt, which has already been fulfilled. Uh, then there's other biblical prophecies in Hosea about uh, a united and other 
scriptures about a united European superpower invading America, which haven't been fulfilled yet. Now, right now, the American military is so much stronger than the European military that you figure, like, well, how does how does that second prophecy, how's that ever going to happen? And so um, Mr. Armstrong kind of put together the prophecies in Deuteronomy with the prophecies in Hosea and Revelation and figures like, well, maybe the that second Great Depression, that banking crisis will be what weakens America to the point and strengthens Europe to the point where there's like a geopolitical inversion where the one could invade the other. So that that article, uh, a bold economic warning goes through um, what may well be uh, Mr. Herbert Armstrong's greatest personal prophecy about a banking crisis in America being what prompts 10 kings in Europe to unite. President Trump's already talking about the possibility of a second Great Depression. Maybe maybe a Republican victory in the midterms could uh, kick that can down the road a little bit, but uh, but it definitely looks like that's in the works. The Way of Debt and A Bold Warning, America's Economic Collapse are the names of those articles. We will leave links to both of those in our notes for today's episode. Thanks very much for that, Andrew. For the next story, we'll continue to look at the United States, where President Biden has just held what sounds to have been a momentous phone call with Chinese General Secretary Xi Jinping. To tell us about this, we'll go to Abraham Blondeau. Yes, yeah. President Biden uh, yesterday talked with President Xi from China for over two hours, which is uh, a long call, uh, especially for the Biden administration. And this seemed like uh, China scolded the, the United States a bit in this call. Both leaders agreed that it was candid in depth, and they mainly talk about Taiwan and Ukraine. However, based on the Chinese release of what was said, Xi warned the United States that, quote, those who play with fire will get burned, unquote. Uh, so this could have been a bit of a humiliating moment for uh, Biden. And through the course of the call, Biden basically affirmed that the United States won't change its policy on Taiwan, that it will stick to the one China policy. It won't uh, interfere in in Chinese um uh, policies and, and aggression towards Taiwan. So despite whatever United States officials say, um, Joe Biden stuck to the talking points and basically conceded to China that Taiwan is theirs for the taking. Um, and this isn't new. Um, the one China policy has been in place since the 1950s. But especially Mr. Flurry draws attention to uh, when Bill Clinton went to um Taiwan in 1998, uh, he caved into Chinese pressure. And Mr. Flurry has an article from a 1998 trumpet called Taiwan Betrayal. And he really um, says that this really showcased America's broken will. Uh, so fast forward down the road to where we are now, and this this is just continuing. And it, in fact, it's worse because now United States has significantly less influence and capability in the Pacific than they did in 1998. And so President Xi kind of scolding the United States in this phone call, it, it really reflects the, the changing strategic dynamic in the Pacific region. Yeah, it really sounds like uh, Xi Jinping was not mincing his words at all in the call here. He, he was especially threatening to unleash fire if 
Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, visits Taiwan, as she's probably planning to do in the next few weeks. Um, and then she also either seems to be ignorant or pretending that he's ignorant of kind of the checks and balances in the U.S. system. You know, President Biden doesn't have the authority to make Pelosi go on the visit or not go. She's part of a whole different branch of government. But Xi Jinping, of course, only knows the authoritarian government that he's at the head of and that he calls all the shots for. So a little bit of a breakdown there. But in either case, this uh, this pressure that Xi Jinping is applying seems to reflect kind of a new strategic reality in the Asian region. Do you, do you think that's the case? Yeah, absolutely. I think for all the big words the United States throws towards China these days, um, really, if you look at the, the facts in the region, the tide has turned against the United States in the Pacific, uh, especially um, especially since Donald Trump has left office. Um, he definitely took a stronger line with with China, but especially since the pandemic started, America looked inward, and China took advantage of America's retreat in the Pacific um, and more of an inward focus on what was going on in the country to really, uh, especially target Southeast Asia uh, with giving vaccines with trade, just in-person diplomatic visits. And that's really swung Southeast Asia towards the Chinese camp. And the reason that's important is because in many ways, Southeast Asia, which is the area uh, like Vietnam, uh, Laos, Cambodia, uh, the South China Sea, and to, towards the Philippines, that area there, that's really the linchpin of the, the strategic battle between the United States and China in that area. Uh, because it's the major trade route in the Pacific. Uh, a third of world trade goes through there. And so China, for a long time, they've been, since the early 2010s, they've been uh, starting to militarize that region in the Spratly Islands, which is right in the middle of the entrance of the South China Sea, uh, putting uh, missiles and, and uh, landing strips there, uh, which gives them the power to control the trade that goes through there. And so the United States has been on the retreat for a long time, especially from the Philippines, which was their major port where they could in intervene in the um, South China Sea. But that's all gone now. And so this really gives China diplomatically, but also even militarily, uh, a lot of authority in the South China Sea. And that is the South China Sea is the Achilles heel of the power that's left in the Pacific the United States has. Most American troops posted overseas are in Korea and Japan. They have hundreds of military bases there. But the problem is 90% of oil that Korea and Japan need, 90% of their oil comes through the South China Sea. So this gives China um, the trump card over those two nations. And as Andrew pointed out, the more the American economy shrinks and collapses, uh, the bigger caller will be the, the recall of these expensive military establishments in Asia. So China really has the trump card over the United States in the Pacific region. Um, and what's astounding is it's happened over time, but this is exactly what the Bible says will happen in these end times here. Abraham mentioned an article there by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry. It's called Taiwan Betrayal. We will leave a link to that in our show notes for today's episode. Really gives some interesting insight into what the uh, outcome of Taiwan's independence will be. And then we'll also leave an, a link there to an article that Abraham wrote just this week. It's called China's Diplomatic Conquest 
of Southeast Asia. Well, thanks very much for that, Abraham. For the next segment, we'll turn our attention to Russia's ongoing war on Ukraine and the cruelty that the Russians are unleashing in the southeast of the nation. For this, we'll go to Richard Palmer. Yes, Europe in the summer is always an interesting kind of country to cover because a lot of the world leaders go on holiday. Uh, Things quieten down to a certain extent. And uh, there are some still some big stories coming from Europe, and we'll certainly talk about one of those in the second half. But it's also a good reminder that there's an absolutely massive story that's been going on for several months. And we've kind of reached the point now where we're just kind of used to it. It's old news. We don't talk about it as much. Uh, But I think it is a good time to be reminded that there is still a great deal of suffering going on in Ukraine. And we had uh, an article from or a, a... a report from Human Rights Watch that sheds some more light on some of what is happening there. We the latest the, the previous revelations about just shocking, horrific cruelty going on in, in Ukraine. They came from the area around Kiev, the capital, uh, and you had Bucha and some of these other towns where the Russia occupied. They pulled out, and then people were able to go in, and and they found all kinds of cruelty and torture and and devastation that had been going on uh, where Russia had had been occupying. We've also seen Russia just deporting and depopulating vast amounts of Ukrainians, bringing them into Russia. Uh, Things that that kind of people thought were confined to the Soviet Union and some of that history where they were just deporting large numbers of people. What we have from the Human Rights Watch report that is new is this is looking more to the south of the region. So this is the uh, occupied region of Kurzon. We're kind of talking about um, Russia. They they had Crimea. They had uh, they'd occupied that a while ago, and uh, then they've been pushing north out of Crimea, and they've been taking territory uh, that's kind of in mainland Ukraine from uh, north of Crimea. So they've been looking into some of what Russia has been doing within this region, and. It's not at all pretty. This is from Yulia Gorbanova. She's a senior Ukraine investigator with Human Rights Watch. Uh, She wrote, Russian forces have turned occupied areas of southern Ukraine into an abyss of fear and wild lawlessness. Torture, inhumane treatment, as well as arbitrary detention and unlawful confinement of civilians are among the apparent war crimes we have documented. And Russian authorities need to end such abuses immediately and understand that they can and will be held accountable. Well, there's no sign of them being held accountable for that, but there's certainly uh, large amounts of, of torture and cruelty going on here. Yeah, it's really tough to hear about the atrocities that are being committed at the hands of Russian forces. And and just still hard to believe, as you said, that all this is happening in Europe in 2022. It sounds like Soviet era kind of uh, evil that we're witnessing here. And if you look into international law, as weak a force as that is, it does stipulate that the kinds of actions that Russia is committing are war crimes. Could you talk a little bit about that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think you know, some of the, the, these aren't the tiny, minute points of international law. You know, this is the kind of the, the Geneva Convention, and I think the parts of international law that we're all relatively familiar with, whether it's from World War II films or this kind of thing. Uh, you know, these rules have been in place for a long, long time. Where fun, you know, you don't treat, you don't torture prisoners of war. Uh, now, I should have looked this up. I, uh, the Soviet Union was not at least during World War II. I don't believe they were even a signatory to the Geneva Convention. 
uh, maybe they have signed up in, in the meantime. But certainly, you know, this is fundamentally not not how international law treats people. But they have been torturing in some cases to death, according to some of the the these uh, testimonies, Ukrainian soldiers that they're capturing. So there were three in particular that this report focused on. And this report focused on testimony from 71 people. So when we talk about, well, they've, they've got details of three soldiers, I mean, we're only scratching the surface. We're looking at a report that uh, this is a war zone under Russian occupation. You're not going to be able to interview hundreds or thousands of people. Uh, so this is an indication of what's going on, most likely or almost certainly on a much wider scale. So there were three Ukrainian citizens, two were tortured to death, um, a third survived. He talked about that, uh, you know, that one of them had you know, broken ribs pressing into his lungs, couldn't lie down, couldn't sit, uh, they were losing weight. And it's just, uh, well, they, they, they talk, Human Rights Watch talked about how some of this is being, a lot of this is being done deliberately. It's part of a deliberate policy to obtain information and instill fear so that people accept the occupation as Russia seeks to assess, assert sovereignty over occupied territories in violation of international law. And of course, another critical way that this violates international law uh, is the treatment of non-combatants and civilians. And again, this is probably the most fundamental push in international law over the last 400 years has been to try and protect the life of non-combatants in, in wars. And once again, we're seeing Russia... Uh, torturing civilians or, or disappearing civilians uh, where then they often, you know, they, they disappear and they, they, they end up in mass graves. They found, I think, 600 civilians in Kherson uh, since February that have been murdered and thrown into mass graves. So, you know, it is, it is a powerful proof that we do like to think, and, and I think this rubs off on all of us. I think it rubs off on myself as well. Uh, and I think I'm realizing that more and more watching this war go on, this idea that is so seductive that human nature is constantly improving, that we are better than the generations that came before us because we are modern and we are sophisticated and we have computers and the internet and we understand foreign languages and we travel around the world. And because of all of these things, we understand each other better and we are just fundamentally nicer people than those that have come before. Uh, and it, it's a belief that's just very pernicious, and I think it can rub off on us without us even thinking about it. And then you know, you look at this, and no, we are every bit as barbaric as as what has happened in the past. And really, this is just the beginning. You know, this this is this is going to happen, and it's going to get worse. I think you know, you look throughout history, and there are times where people came up with laws of war, and they tended to obey them for a while. And then you get a period where somebody starts breaking them, whether it's an Adolf Hitler or a Putin or Napoleon Bonaparte. You had exactly the same thing in the Napoleonic Wars and the French Revolution, uh, where people start breaking these conventions and very quickly they completely go out the window and everybody is committing acts uh, of incredible cruelty. That's what we're that's the process that we're starting to to see here. And it is it becomes normal. It becomes it's not you know, news is what is happening that's new. And Russia has been torturing civilians since March, February. Uh, but it's important to still stop and see that this is happening. What literature would you recommend for listeners who would like to uh, better understand the situation there in Russia? Well, one thing I'll mention is your article. We've been kind of doing this this thing we do from time to time where uh, I you know, you're interviewing me about an article you wrote this week. Russia has made Ukraine region an abyss of fear and wild lawlessness. 
Uh, that went out as the trumpet brief on Thursday. That's a great place to go to get more details uh, on this subject. And as unpleasant as it might be to look at this subject, uh, it's still an important one one to look at. And, and that goes through that. And then maybe I'll also just point to the prophesied prince of Rush, the, of Russia. Sorry, this booklet by trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry that puts this all in context uh, with Bible prophecy. And that is absolutely critical on this subject. If you just look at it alone, it, it is a depressing subject to get into. But even as, as your, the point you make in your article, you, know, you, you start to put this in its prophetic context. You see that this individual, Vladimir Putin, was specifically prophesied. You see some of the statements that Mr. Flurry was making about him coming up now into 10 years ago, talking about how he was capable of evil on a level of Joseph Stalin, uh, something that we're just seeing proven true more and more. You know, this is a part of Bible prophecy, and Bible prophecy fits that man into prophecy for us. He says that he's on the scene right before the end of these events. He's part of God's plan, and very soon Jesus Christ is going to intervene in world affairs, and he is going to be gone, and this is part of a plan to, to, to completely change human nature, to eliminate this type of evil on this earth forever. Uh, so that prophetic context is just critical, and the prophesied prince of Russia is a great place to get that. We will be sure to include a link to the prophesied prince of Russia in our show notes for today's program, as well as the article, Russia has made Ukraine region an abyss of fear and wild lawlessness. Well, thanks very much for that, Mr. Palmer. For the next story, we'll take a look at one of the big knock-on effects of Russia's war. And we can actually get a glimpse into this by looking at the guest list for French President Emmanuel Macron's dinner from last night. For this, we'll go to Brent Noctegal. Yes, when it comes to uh, what makes the world go round still, it's oil. And in cases when uh, the Europeans are struggling to find it, then you have the French president, uh, Emmanuel Macron, being willing to sit down at a state dinner with the leader of the great pariah, Saudi Arabia. Uh, of course, the Western media is not in love with Mohammed bin Salman, the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia, uh, going back to his his treatment of the Washington Post, uh, sometimes journalist um, Jamal Khashoggi that was murdered in the in the uh, Turkish uh, consulate or uh, Saudi Arabian consulate in Turkey. Um, and so they are absolutely beside themselves. Uh, Politico.eu, Washington Post, Le Monde, uh, a lot of different papers are very upset that Macron was willing to have a dinner with MBS. However, um, as I said, there is a great need right now in Europe, the United States and elsewhere for more oil to, to be on the market to help uh, each of these nations politically. And so it makes sense for Mohammed bin Salman and the French president to get together and see what they can do. Uh, I think there was a there was a great quote that was by one of Marine Le Pen, uh, so Marine Le Pen's uh, colleagues. Uh, they said this about the visit. Uh, they said uh, it proves that the only thing that matters is real politic. At least we admit real politic is what we do, and we don't have to pretend. Meaning that Macron pretends that he's a he's a moral leader, according to them. Um, and yet, when it comes down to it, the needs of the state in this case mean that it needs to be willing to welcome Saudi Arabia in, show itself friendly. Um, and I think that's not just for the oil. That's what everyone is going to focus on. That's what the Western media is going to focus on. However, I think it is it is to be to be um, uh, looked at that historically there has been a pretty close relationship between Saudi Arabia and the French. Uh, I think that this, uh, the French, as far as any European nation at this moment that is concerned about Iran's rise, um, 
they would want to seek to ally themselves with the great uh, uh, um, enemy of of Iran in Saudi Arabia. And so I think there is a lot of geopolitical backing or decision making that's going into having this meeting. Um, however, you know, it's it's definitely not surprising looking at it in that vein. And I think that's why the French president was willing to to meet. Yeah, it has been stunning over the years to see just how dependent Europe has made itself on Russian energy. And, and of course, now that the war with Ukraine has, has broken out, the flows from Russia are ending. And European leaders seem to be almost in panic mode, just traveling around and pulling out all the stops. You know, Emmanuel Macron having this dinner with uh, Mohammed bin Salman, kind of a, uh, a real pariah. Um, so it's it's easy to see why France would be courting Saudi Arabia so earnestly. Um, And as you said, there's also the geopolitical motivations there for Saudi Arabia to try to ally with other enemies of Iran. Uh, What would you say is the real big picture significance of this story? And what literature would you recommend for listeners who would like to study into that? Right. So I think there's two points. I think Europeans that are getting more and more um, concerned about oil and the lack of it coming from Russia means that the the bigger picture for them is to see what they can get out of the Middle East. Uh, and Bible prophecy is is very indicative that there is going to be a dangerous uh, restriction of Middle Eastern oil that Europe is more dependent on than they have been in the past. And Mr. Flurry has written about that in his book, The King of the South. And and even, I mean, he wrote about that, I think, 25 years ago, how that this uh push that is going to be led by the Iranian-backed Islamists that is going to try and shut off a lot of Middle Eastern oil. Um, When he wrote that, there wasn't too much Middle Eastern oil actually coming up to, uh, coming up into Europe. They had different sources. Uh, Now it looks like they're going to try and access more through Saudi Arabia and such. And so there's that element that going forward, Iran, if it is to shut down vital oilways, uh, like Bible prophecy says, will happen, that Europe will be impacted in a greater way. I think this. the other point is the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Europe itself is is destined to increase based on biblical prophecy as well. This is found in, in Psalm 83. There's a detailing, a detailing of Middle Eastern nations uh, that come together with a European nation. It mentions Germany in this, in this, uh, in this prophecy or or modern-day Assyria is what we the German nation is. However, putting it together with with other prophecies found in Revelation, we know that um, that Germany will be leading a European uh, combine that most likely includes the French as well. And so, to see closer ties right now between the French, who's often at the forefront of European um, diplomacy, European security, uh, and the Saudis, this is a relationship that the the Bible says will strengthen in a, into a full-blown alliance um and and so uh, french you know the french leader this current leader may go uh however the the long-term strategic interest of france does lie with a relationship with saudi arabia and that's what the bible says i think a great place for people to go uh, to get more of the biblical prophecy backing on this is our trend article why the trumpet watches an alliance between arab nations and europe 
Why the Trumpet Watches an Alliance Between Arab Nations and Europe is the name of that article that goes through a, really a detailed study of the, the relevant Bible prophecies here. Um, well, thanks very much for bringing us up to speed on that, Brent. We will take a short break now, and when we come back, we'll talk about Europe's energy crisis, fresh threats from North Korea, the tides turning for Benjamin Netanyahu, and the U.S. military's manpower shortage. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. We spoke a bit in the first half about the pressure that France specifically is under to come up with hydrocarbons to replace those that it's no longer getting from Russia. And this is really creating an energy crisis throughout Europe with Germany being hit particularly hard. To tell us about the situation with Germany, we'll go back to Mr. Palmer. Yes, we have to give a bit of a story so far. Once again, on this one, it has been a, a fairly, uh, it's been a developing story. So we talked several weeks ago about the Nord Stream 1 pipeline that Russia has built to Germany. And this is where Germany gets a huge amount of its gas. Uh, Russia had been reducing the volume of gas that it sent over this pipeline. They then shut it down completely. Uh, then they reopened it. There was some speculation that they wouldn't do that. I think a lot of a lot of German politicians breathed a sigh of relief at that point. It was then, but it, they were going to reopen it at forty percent capacity, uh, and they weren't really happy about that. It had been forty percent before they shut it down, so they were going to continue uh, going on on go slow. Then this week they halved that again. They said we're just going to operate under twenty percent capacity, and Russia has all kinds of economic excuses for this. Uh, they're bogus. I won't even get into the details too much. This is this is a political move, but it's putting Europe now under extreme energy pressure. Some of the, the statistics, the prices of energy now are kind of off the charts, and so they're talking. And if you kind of put the energy equivalent of natural gas into um, barrels of gallon kind of terms, the price of gas is about three times the price of crude oil now. So if you think it was expensive filling up your car, uh, it's three times that now for, for Europeans trying to uh, fuel their houses. And, and a lot of the electricity market runs from, from natural gas. A lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of people's homes, heat, they heat their homes directly from national gas. And it is, it is kind of insane. So before late last year, electricity in Europe had never cost more than 100 euros per megawatt hour. That was that was kind of a, a record that was shattered late last year. In France, it's 500 now. Uh, 500 euros per megawatt hour. Uh, Euro Intelligence wrote this week, to call the wholesale price increases we're seeing unprecedented would be a gross understatement. Now, consumers aren't necessarily seeing these yet. These are wholesale prices, and they're often complicated mechanisms. That, that pass their way on to the consumers. But certainly it's uh, it's heading that way. There was a, a big energy regulator in the UK this week. This was some of the big news. They came out and said the average price of uh, energy, so electricity and, and gas for the average English family, uh, they said in January it's going to hit 500 pounds a month. So you're looking at something like $700 a month for your electricity bill or for your electricity and gas bill. 
uh, and then that's consumer energy. Then you then you've got all of the industry. You know, Germany has a massive chemical industry, and they make a lot of money from exporting chemicals o- abroad. And natural gas is a key ingredient or a key component in so many of these chemical processes. And a lot of ammonia-based fertilizers, nitrogen-based fertilizers, natural gas is a key part of that. And big companies are starting to say, well, we're going to have to cut back on fertilizer production. Fertilizer costs are already high. Well, then that starts to hit the farming industry. So uh, you know, this is this is something that's maybe not a massive crisis next week. But typically what happens is and this is another important component of this, Europe normally refills its gas reserves over the summer. They import way more than they need. They pump up their big storage <laughs> containers. Then they're much less vulnerable to Russian blackmail in the winter, and they can they can kind of get through. There will be no filling up of gas reserves over the summer now. Uh, and it's going to give Russia just a huge amount of power over what happens in Europe over the winter. Yeah, really, really stunning increases there. And it's happened just so quickly. Um, This is really just causing havoc on the economy that, as you said, it's hard for us to even have a a clear picture of how momentous this is at this point. Would you be able to take a moment to explain the significance of this in terms of Bible prophecy? Yeah, I think this ties in very directly to what Andrew was talking about, this personal prophecy from Mr. Armstrong that he brought up in the first half. You know, that Mr. Armstrong talked about, well, the Bible talks about 10 kings coming together in Europe. Revelation 17 talks about these 10, 10 powers that give their power as part of this, this beast power, this overall empire. Revelation 18 talks about them being a, a major economic power. And so, as Andrew said, you know, economics is going to play a major role in causing the kind of the crises and catastrophes necessary for these 10 kings to come together uh, in a unified empire. You know, Europe hasn't come together. They've been forming all they haven't come fully together. They've been working on this European project since the 40s, since the 50s. There is not this kind of um, ten, very clear 10-nation beast power. You know, the beast power, I think it's, it's there, uh, but it's not in that final form quite yet. And Mr. Armstrong and Mr. Flurry both talked about how economic crisis is going to be one of the key factors in bringing it out into that final form, having it fully come out of the underground, as Revelation 17 talks about. And so these economic crises that Europe's uh, flying into could very well play a key role in that. And you, you, like Andrew talked about, you tie that into then economic problems coming into America and you have the potential for some catastrophic changes coming to Europe. And, and another place that you can read about that uh, is Mr. Flurry's article, How the Global Financial Crisis Will Produce Europe's Ten Kings. Well, thanks very much for that, Mr. Palmer. We'll turn our attention now to the Hermit Kingdom, North Korea, where the leadership seems to be once again adopting a more openly belligerent foreign policy. For this, we'll turn it back over to Abraham. Yes. Yeah, this is another case of where when the United States has weak leadership, you have these belligerent nations all over the world take advantage of it. That's exactly what North Korea is doing now. President uh, Kim gave a speech this past week during the anniversary of they call Victory Day in North Korea when uh, the Korean War ended. And uh, it was a pretty fiery speech. And and during that speech, he declared that North Korea is ready to mobilize its nuclear weapons. Now, North Korea makes a lot of different claims and, and back and forth over these nuclear weapons, but it's easy for us to dismiss it as a non threat or that they're boasting or uh, lying about their true capability. But North Korea does pose a significant threat, especially since they are 
a Stalinist um, hermit kingdom, like you said, and just with a, a leader that's completely out of his mind. So they're very unpredictable. And these threats, they're, um, he's especially zoned in on the new South Korean president, uh, Yoon suk Yeol, who took office in May. And uh, President Yoon, he's been much more hawkish, um, where he's even uh, asked for a plan to have a preemptive strike capability of nuclear weapons himself in South Korea, which would be a huge shift in um, the geopolitics in Asia, especially on the Korean Peninsula. So you have this speech by uh, uh, President Kim, and that follows uh, this year where they've done a bunch of um, missile tests. I think it's record-breaking how many missile tests they've done including firing off uh, an ICBM, Intercontinental Ballistic Missile, uh, at full range, the first time since 2017, which was uh, right when President Trump was coming into office. So you can see they're definitely ramping up their uh, provocative behavior, um, and some of it's in response to what's going on around them. But I think North Korea, they haven't been in the headlines for a long time. They were pretty quiet for a number of years. But now they're coming back uh, more aggressive and they've had more time just to keep working on their nuclear capability. So I think it's a mistake for us to dismiss it. And that in the background of everything going on in the world, you still have this madman with nuclear weapons right in a, a tinderbox in Asia. What would you say is the importance of this in the context of Bible prophecy? Trumpet editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Fleury, he wrote a booklet uh, a few years ago called nuclear armageddon is at the door and in this uh booklet he does talk about north korea and how this is actually a sign of of the uh coming great tribulation uh because it's all about nuclear proliferation jesus christ talks about in matthew 24 how right before he returns uh no flesh would be saved alive which means nuclear weapons would be used and as mr flory talks about there's this trend where nuclear weapons are spreading to more and more different uh, regions in the world more and more countries are getting their hands on them so you have north korea this madman having them and that there's history of iran getting help from north korea for their nuclear program um, but then now you have south korea wanting nuclear weapons and so the bible does indicate that several allies of the united states like germany maybe now south korea but especially germany that they they'll get nuclear weapons and it will just keep spreading and eventually some of these could be used on the United States and uh, the British Commonwealth. So this this is just a, more of a trend, but it does show that nuclear proliferation is dangerous and it's going to keep spreading right up until there there is uh, the flashpoint when they are used against the Israelite nations uh, in these end times. We'll include a link in our show notes to that booklet, uh, Nuclear Armageddon is at the Door. This booklet goes through the passages that Abraham was just discussing there in great detail, along with uh, several other passages. So please order your free copy of Nuclear Armageddon is at the Door to better understand that. Thanks very much for that, Abraham. For the next story, we'll take a look at Israel's political arena where a new party has just been formed. For this, we'll go back to Brent Noctegal. This was always going to be something that um, most likely happened because uh, the the former party of Yamina or Rightwood, uh, led by Naftali Bennett in the previous election, it really did betray its voters by 
uh, its right wing voters by deciding to um, go back on a campaign promise and actually join with a left wing government that included some of the Arab parties, some of the anti-Zionist parties, some of the anti-Israel parties, you could say. Uh, and these vo- voters um, were very disenfranchised. Um, they felt like they were betrayed. And so what would happen in the next election? Of course, we know that the election is called for November 1st. And so what are these voters going to do? Now, Naftali Bennett, the former prime minister, he has he has decided not to run at all in this next Knesset, in the next election. And so his number two, Ayelet Shaked, is stayed with Naftali Bennett for a long time. Uh, she used to be the... Um, uh, the minister in charge of the courts, uh, judicial minister, and and so she's she's actually she did it, and during her tenure she did reform the rogue Supreme Court as much as possible, um, and so she's staying in politics. She's still seen as as by many right wing voters as somebody that even though she was part of Yamina uh, has not portrayed, uh, I guess, her voters as much as Naftali Bennett has. And so what she's done now is decided to split. Yamina is now dead. Uh, That former party is now joining, uh, is now making a new party called the Zionist Spirit uh, Party. This formed with Derek Eretz, uh, another right-wing party. And so we've got a new party in Israeli politics. Now, his new parties aren't not necessarily a big deal. They happen every election cycle. However, what's interesting about this is while Naftali Bennett said that he would not join or not go in with Prime Minister Netanyahu, Ayelet Shaked is very open to forming a government in coalition with Benjamin Netanyahu. And so those voters that voted for Yamina last time, some of them will vote for this new party, Zionist Spirit. Some of them will probably vote for Likud, Netanyahu's party, uh, just because they're guaranteed that you know, he's not going to betray, betray the voters. He is going to stay as part of a right-wing government. Um, so then the question becomes, will this new party called uh, Zionist Spirit pass the the threshold to the electoral threshold to make it to the Knesset? This means that you've got to get, I think it's um, over three and a half percent of the vote to make it. This makes ensures there's no one seat uh, parties inside the Knesset. So a minimum of four seats Uh, which is the three and a half percent of the vote uh, for the Knesset. And so the first poll that came out, it didn't look like they were going to break the the electoral threshold, so they wouldn't be included. Uh, And if that was the case, Netanyahu's bloc would not be able to receive a majority in the Knesset. However, there was a poll conducted uh, just over over the past weekend, um, and it was released where it showed that uh, this new party would break the electoral threshold. They would become part of the Knesset. They would become four seats. And if this new party did decide that it would go with Netanyahu, it would bring Netanyahu's coalition over the magical 61 uh, votes or 61 uh, seats in the Knesset, which would give him a majority enough to be the next prime minister. So this is the first sign we've seen of any poll uh, since elections were called uh, that Netanyahu could find himself back in the prime minister's seat. 
Zionist spirit. That's a it's a really patriotic sounding name for this new party. Sort of calls to mind uh, the "Make America Great Again" slogan that Donald Trump used here in the U.S. Um, what can you tell us about the connection between these two leaders, and you know the the view that the Trumpet has that they'll both be back in power soon, and and really the significance of that? Right. So. I mean, we do expect, uh, based on Bible prophecy, for for Mr. Trump to come back into power in the United States. And there's always that's been based on a, a prophecy uh, that Mr. Flurry has showed uh, from Second Kings, uh, chapter fourteen. And there's a really interesting connection between the person that's typed as, as, as President Trump in that prophecy, uh, Jeroboam II, and also the nation of Judah, uh, end time Judah, which is which is the, the nation of Israel today. They really do go hand in hand. And, and yet the relationship between um, Trump and others, um, uh, other Israeli politicians has never been as strong as the one between Netanyahu and and President Trump, and so Mr. Flurry's spoken about this, and uh, the that it, it does seem to indicate that both men will come back to power, and leading, continuing a strong relationship at least for the for the near term. He he talks about this in his article, "What Will Happen After Trump Regains Power." Um, just this interesting connection between biblical Judah or the nation of Israel and Trump's return. So. I mean, when we when we saw elections being called, uh, we did all think, I think, regular trumpet listeners did think perhaps this means Netanyahu could come back. Uh, while there is still, I think, a, a bumpy road to go forward, we're just basing this, um, we're basing this discussion on just one poll. Um, however, it is possible now. It does look like it's foreseeable that that Mr. Netanyahu will uh, come back to power, which which really does show that I think. Um, uh, that this prophecy in, in Second Kings chapter fourteen, uh, involving President Trump and, and Israel, is going to go forward. I think it's it's interesting in that prophecy. It really does speak to how uh, President Trump or Jeroboam the second does do a lot for Judah, and perhaps you might see some some scale tip tipping uh, here in the near future in the lead up to the election in Israel, with President Trump definitely making uh, his preferred candidate known. He, he's a he's a volatile figure, President Trump, but there's no denying that he has been closer uh, to pres to Prime Minister Netanyahu than any other candidate on the list. What will happen after Trump regains power is the name of that article by Trump editor in chief Gerald Flurry. We will be sure to include a link to that in our show notes for today's episode. Thanks very much for that, Brent. For our final story of the show today, we'll discuss the United States Army failing by a worrying margin to meet its recruitment goals. To tell us what's behind this, we'll go back to Andrew. Yeah, we talked a little bit in the first half of the show about uh, factors weakening the U.S. military to the point where eventually it can be uh, prophetically overthrown by a European superpower. And this is uh, another one of those factors. They've actually had uh, some new reports out that uh, nearly every branch of the United States military will fail to meet its recruitment goals this year. Uh, actually, the, the U.S. Army, which is one of the branches that's having the most problems um they only met 40 percent of its 2020 recruitment goals which means that they were they were hoping to get uh, more than double the new recruits that uh that they ended up getting and um 
uh, even a Victor Davis Hanson over at American Greatness, he he wrote a piece on this where he's saying that if some solution is not found quickly, the armed forces will radically shrink or be forced to lower standards or both. Uh, and also highlights a statistic that the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation conducts periodic polls as to how Americans feel about their military. And he said that about two years ago, 70% of Americans expressed a great deal of trust in their armed forces. Uh, that number is now plummeted from 70% down to 45%. And uh, so a, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, military officials are concerned about this, and they uh, they've cited they uh, the official military reports cite the the normal reasons for um, for this decline in recruitment, saying well drug use, gang affiliation, physical and mental incapacities, uh, the COVID pandemic, uh, things like uh, resentment over vaccine mandates is all. Uh, contributing to this lowering of recruitments and i mean that that's is probably partially true but it doesn't explain why they've just dramatically dropped in the last year or two because yeah gang violence has been going on for a long time right yeah so you know it's easy to see that uh a great number of young americans are ineligible because of of gang violence and uh drug addiction and physical and mental incapacities of all kinds as you mentioned there are also covid uh covid vaccine mandates that many of them just don't don't want to comply with um and then it's also been just about a year since the us's very shameful withdrawal from afghanistan which was just such a black eye we know for the military on top of that you have many of america's top brass now kind of embracing the you know, the woke agenda, how much of an effect do you think those things are having on what would be qualified applicants? That's probably the biggest change that's made the applications drop in the last year or two. The fact that, uh, uh the fact that after this just disastrous Afghan withdrawal, like any, any young man in America wanting to join the military is like watching people getting stranded in Kabul, uh, just thrown, basically thrown to the wolves of the Taliban by uh, a military <laughs> administration that didn't seem to care very much about that. That's not it's not something a lot of Americans are going to want to sign up for. Uh, also, then you have the um, all the the revelations about the uh, the critical race theory and the transgender agenda that a lot of more conservative middle uh, uh, middle American uh, Midwestern Americans who um, join the military for patriotic reasons in the past don't necessarily want to read why your baby is racist by that uh kendry guy uh and so uh found go into engineering or something like that and then the third one is also i think that uh victor davis hansen brings out is just the idea that the re the revelations that uh general milley actually uh, he said he was worried that Trump might take military action against China at some point. So he actually called like the communist Chinese on his own to warn him about that. And so I think a lot of the more patriotic Americans are saying, hey, it's like the military is being abandoned to the Taliban. They're more concerned about um, critical race theory than they are about defending the country. And the Joint Chiefs of Staff is actually talking to the Chinese behind America's back. So uh, 
thanks, but no thanks. And so the, the literature we'll put in this, we do have a, uh, Abe Blendeau has an article uh, up on the website titled U.S. Military Faces Recruitment Crisis that goes over this in some more details. And then we also have Chapter 8 of Mr. Gerald Fleury's uh, new and greatly expanded booklet, America Under Attack, which is titled This Is Not Incompetence, that really goes through the Afghan withdrawal, showing that this is that disastrous Afghan withdrawal, something the Obama-Biden administration did to deliberately weaken America and may have even partially done to discourage um, the more patriotic conservative Americans from joining uh, their new woke military. Right. We will drop links to both of those in the show notes for today's episode, and you'll see links there to all of the articles and books and booklets that we've mentioned today. So please check that out for some important reading. We are now coming to the end of Trumpet Hour. Please send any comments or questions you may have about today's episode to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks very much to our panel, Andrew Miller, Abe Blondeau, Mr. Richard Palmer, and Brent Noctegall. Thanks also very much to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. And we'll leave you today with these words from George Orwell. The most effective way to destroy people is to deny and obliterate their own understanding of their history. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. You've been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.